Production support for Earth Eats comes from Charles Schwab and Company, Inc. Independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner, CFP, and Associates offer personalized financial plans and continuing financial education matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com Bloomington. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. Charity is not justice. Charity is what a society does when there is no justice. On today's show, a rebroadcast of our conversation with Andy Fisher, author of Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. We've had Amanda Nicky and Stephanie Solomon on Earth Eats talking about food pantries addressing root causes of hunger, And Angela Babb has helped us look at some of the interesting configurations around government food aid, SNAP, and Big Ag. Andy Fisher takes us further, asking tough questions about charity and how we can do the most good. It's a thought-provoking discussion coming up after a report from Harvest Public Media about farmers facing flooded fields in the Midwest. Stay with us. It's been rainy this week, but it's been months since massive flooding first washed over parts of the Midwest. For many farmers, recovery has been slow. It's also delayed planting, at a time many growers can't afford to miss out on a good crop. As Jack Williams reports for Harvest Public Media, the trick is to wait for the soggy fields to dry out. Clear! For Scott Olson, getting a good look at his land in Nebraska these days takes more than just a pickup truck. Olson is a farmer in northeast Nebraska, corn and soybeans, but he's also a pilot and uses his small plane to check on areas he can't access because of high water from the nearby Missouri River. We first spoke to him about a month ago and things weren't good. Not much has changed. The water's high enough now, it's coming over the roads, um, but the entrance into the other entrance into this field to the north is also underwater. So at this point in time right now, I cannot even get onto my farm ground down there. Olson has been able to plant more than a thousand acres of higher ground, but the land by the river still looks like a big, muddy lake. If you walk across mud, just try to think about running a tractor and a planter across it and see how far you get. You just, you can't touch it. There's nothing you can do with it. These have been some of the wettest months in recent times in the Midwest. Farms and livelihoods are at stake for growers like Olson who can't get into their fields to plant. The deadline for certain federal programs that help farmers offset weather-related crop issues is approaching. Olson says time is running out on some of his crops. Corn has to have a certain amount of uh, daylight hours and heat units to grow and produce to have a decent crop. Uh, The further we get into this month of June, the less crop it will produce. Within a two-week period, this ground needs to dry out so we can get a crop in. Otherwise, our crop will be greatly depleted on it. Um, This is the first soybeans we planted. I can't give you the approximate date, but they've probably been in the ground here about 20 days now, I would say, or 20 days since we planted. Dave Nielsen's family has been farming land near Lincoln, Nebraska for over 100 years, and they've seen many ups and downs. He says in his case, the weather isn't as disruptive as tariffs and a trade standoff with China. 
He says it could take years to reconnect with buyers. There's going to be long-term effects. This isn't, you know, we drop the tariffs and the next day we're shipping as many beans as we did a year ago. That That's not going to happen. He's one of the fortunate ones. He farms about 2,400 acres of corn and soybeans in the rolling hills and has been able to plant all of his crops despite the wet weather. There was a small window to plant corn and beans around here and we, we pushed hard and got it done. You know, that's been a benefit for us. I mean, we put in some extra long hours and, you know, soil temps weren't quite warm enough, but we went ahead and, and we've lucked out. But after a wet fall, lots of snow and frost over the winter and now a soggy spring, Nielsen says his crops could use some drier weather. They like moisture, but they don't want to sit in wet weather all the time. You want corn to kind of root down. So when we do get a dry time, you know, it's got its root base there. Or if you get bad weather, you know, winds and stuff, you want a good root base on your corn so it doesn't blow over. When you look at some of this residue, the soil around it's quite wet, but underneath that, it's just straight mud. And so the challenge is to try to plant into that and do it in a timely fashion. John McNamara is a soil and crop expert with agriculture giant Wilbur Ellis in Plattsmouth, Nebraska. He helps growers decide when to plant, and this year hasn't been easy. You've got tariffs, you've got low commodity prices, uh, you've got weather delays, you've got input prices that are high, and a whole host of other things that weigh on the strategies that go into a cropping season. He says if farmers can't get seed into the ground soon, crop yields will likely fall off sharply. We do reach a point in June where your expectations for your average yield have got to go down because you don't have enough calendar year to get the crop mature. You guys got that good old gumbo on your shoes, that's good stuff. Down by the Missouri River and in the muddy fields at Scott Olson's farm, a little good news and good weather would go a long way. Farming these days is a tough way to make a living. What keeps you going here? Well, just like any other business, I guess you have good years and you have some bad years, but uh, uh, it's something that we've always done. It's always been a way of life. I don't want to give it up. Olson says farming is all about patience and perseverance, and he says he and a lot of other Midwest growers have an abundance of both. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Jack Williams. Harvest Public Media reports on food and farming in the heartland. Find out more at harvestpublicmedia.org. My guest today is Andy Fisher. He's author of the book Big Hunger, and co-founder and longtime executive director of the Community Food Security Coalition. The CFSC was a national alliance of groups working on access to healthy food. The organization disbanded in 2012. I've invited Andy Fisher to Earth Eats to talk about the critiques and challenges he puts forward in his book to the food banking and food charity models that many of us are familiar with across the country. Thank you very much for being here, Andy Fisher. If you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write the book, Big Hunger. For 17 years, I ran the main national alliance of groups working on access to food and, and local food. So I was at the kind of at the at a front row seat with major national anti-hunger groups and did a lot of work trying to educate and pull the anti-hunger community more towards a focus on sustainability and prevention and public health and 
saw a lot of success and saw a lot of struggles. And during that time period, what became evident was that we weren't solving the problem of hunger and that food insecurity was stagnating or getting worse in many occasions, while income inequality was getting worse as well. But the anti-hunger community was building relationships with corporate America, Walmart. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. And, you know, Walmart, for example, just has the obvious implications of it of its low wages. And those, those partnerships uh, became evident that they were holding the, the anti-hunger community back from fully addressing the problem. So after I left my job in 2011, I was privy to a lot of information, a lot of knowledge that I hadn't been able to really make public while I was employed. So once I became unemployed, it was easier for me to, to bring to light those conversations that were happening around me. Your book is called Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and anti-hunger groups. And I just think that is a great place to start. If you could just tell us what is this unholy alliance you just started to talk sure. about? Sure. Anti-hunger groups over the years have developed very tight relationships with industry. And in many ways, those relationships have a positive impact, and that's why they do them. For example, in the advocacy end of things, anti-hunger groups lobby closely with industry. And industry spent, for example, in 2013, they spent $60 million lobbying for the Farm Bill on SNAP. And they lobby together, in, again, in many cases, to protect the program because it's a, it's a, it's a huge source of, of revenue for the food industry, uh, $60 billion a year just for SNAP. For example, anti-hunger groups and the, and the beverage industry lobby together to protect the continued ability of, of SNAP recipients to purchase soda in the SNAP program, so to the tune of about $6 billion a year. Again, there's about $80 billion in federal food programs if you count SNAP, WIC, school lunches, et cetera. So that money is going largely into the pockets of industry. So in, in doing my research, I found that there's a number of studies that find that if you're going to try to reduce poverty, if you want to create jobs, if you want to put money into tax coffers, if you want to keep money in local communities, you don't invest those resources into big corporations. You invest them into locally owned businesses, small businesses, medium-sized businesses that are more responsive to their communities. So I, you know, I ask, you know, what, couldn't we be spending that $85 billion better? Couldn't we be spending that money in a way that supports locally com communities, economies that invest in poverty reduction and invest in job creation better than putting the money into the pockets of Walmart or Tyson, mm -hmm. many of whom have exploitative practices? So that's part of the unholy alliance. The other part of the unholy alliance is that you see food banks uh, partnering very closely with industry, uh, about 22% of food bank board members come from Fortune 1000 companies. And that's, you know, that is what it is. That's fine on some level, but those those relationships are holding food banks back from advocating on on things like minimum wage and affordable housing, on tax policy, on immigration, because those policies are not in the interests of their business partners. The relationships being very strong with food banks and corporations around food donations, around cash donations, around technical expertise, that are all integrating them in a very tight, tight, tightly knit web, um, of which which interests industry as much as it interests the food banks, because mm -hmm. it is enables them to whitewash their reputations, enables them to appear to be hunger fighters, and to continue their core business practices in many cases, uh, which are exploitative and, and actually causing food insecurity rather than solving it. The anti-hunger lobbyists in, in Washington you know, feel that they need to build as broad a tent as possible. 
to support the SNAP program to make sure that it you know continues through Congress and to fight off Republican cutbacks. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they feel like they are not powerful enough to do it themselves. So they have allied themselves with industry. And SNAP is a 60-ish billion dollar program of which the vast majority of that money is going into the pockets of big food and big ag. For example, Kraft says one-sixth of its sales come from SNAP. Walmart uh, redeems $13 billion worth of SNAP in 2014. So there, those are huge amounts of revenue for these companies. And when there are cutbacks to SNAP, when there's threats of cutbacks to SNAP, their stocks fall. So okay. it, it, it's a very clear benefit. It's a very important revenue source for them. If you look at the SNAP program, there's a front end and a back end. The front end is ben- is the, the individuals who receive the EBT cards that they can use at the supermarket. It's absolutely vital for them mm-hmm. and is absolutely vital program to protect their their ability to feed themselves. And, and you know, I think and on and, and, and some level, the industry support keeps that going. Mm-hmm. But it's not altruism. It's not it's not philanthropy. They're doing it because they're also protecting their interests. I come from a food system perspective. I come from a kind of looking at the impacts of, of the food industry on the environment, on workers, on, on people's health. And you see time and time again with m- many of the major food producers that their practices are not in the public interest. Uh, Tyson, for example, uh, ha- exploits its workers, exploits its farmers directly. Walmart pays subliving wages. You know, Smithfield is producing massive amounts of hog waste that are affecting communities very negatively. And I mean, so there's story after story after story uh, of that of that exploitation. So we're subsidizing that behavior. We're subsidizing that that the, those types of practices with our public money. Is that in our values? Is that a good thing? What's the, what's the collateral damage we're causing by doing that? Is uh, you know, I ask, is there not a better way to invest that money uh, to use, as, as Kevin Morgan, who's a, a professor in Wales, says, to use the power of the public plate? How can we use public procurement dollars through SNAP, through school lunch, through WIC, to foster a food system whose values we support and, and which supports social and public goods? I know that you've done some work with the Farm to School program, and so that feels like one of those places where you could start to see a shift. Could you explain that and talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the National School Lunch Program operates in almost every school around the country. There has been an effort over the past 20 years or so to improve the quality of school lunches, improving nutrition standards as uh, the last administration did. Uh, But some of the efforts have also been around making direct connections between local farmers and school districts. So school districts are spending an increasing amount of money purchasing food from local farmers. In in Portland, Oregon, the Portland Public School buys about 40% of its food from Oregon growers. It's it's a win-win-win. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's providing better food, fresher food into the cafeterias. The kids are eating it are accepting it and liking it better because it's better quality. And it's providing some income into the pockets of local farmers. Uh, So it's improving the local economy. It just seems like a really good example of exactly what you were talking about and what kind of drove you into this was seeing that couldn't this money be serving the local community a little bit better? Absolutely. Thank you. I'm speaking with Andy Fisher, author of the book Big Hunger. We'll return to our conversation in a moment. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. 
bill at griffeycreek.studio. And Charles Schwab and Company, Inc., Independent branch leader Jeremy Zeichner CFP and Associates offer personalized financial plans and continuing financial education matched to investors' goals. More at schwab.com slash Bloomington. The anti-hunger work, which centers around uh, feeding people in through food pantries, through food banking, it's not getting at the root causes of hunger. Could you talk a little bit about some of those root causes? And Sure. Can I tell, can I tell a quick story? Yes, okay. please. So, um, story, like, story I'd like to tell is of my son. His name is Orion, like the constellation. And Orion was in third grade a few years ago, and he came home really excited because there was going to be a food drive in his class. And it was a competition between his class and all the other classes in the school, and whichever class raised the most food and the most money would get a pizza party perfect thing to motivate a third grader, right? So he comes in stripping the cupboard bare, looking for the heaviest food he can find. Takes it, goes back to school, all's good. Week passes, the deadline for the for the food drive is coming near. I'm out on my way out to the grocery store. Ryan tells me, Dad, Dad, you got to get me some heavy food. So I'm at the grocery store thinking about, you know, the cost per pound ratio of food and, you know, what's heavy and what's cheap. And I go, oh, my God, I could get him a two-liter bottle of, like, Pepsi or something like that. And... I couldn't do it, but that's the type of thing that fits that that food drive, right? Um, but as I was shopping, I realized that there was just something here that was bugging me about this uh, about this food drive, and that it's it's um, a microcosm of the emergency food system of food banking, and that is that they measure their success in terms of the pounds that they distribute and the people that they serve. The more pounds that they put out, the more people they serve, the more they appear to be successful the happier they are. And they and they keep doing that in their strategic plans of, of you know, trying to grow, grow, grow. And it's this kind of corporate growth model of, of the more we do, the better we are. But when you really take a step back and look at it, yeah, you're successful in averting hunger for a family for a day or for a week or however long their food box lasts. But they're coming back next month or they're coming back in three months and, or six months. We see this kind of entrenched food insecurity more and more within food banking where it's not just a one-off, where it's not just getting people over that hump, but it's people are relying on that food. It's maintenance food. It's not mm-hmm. emergency food. So what does that food really do? It helps people on a temporary basis, which is great, important, essential. But is it getting at the underlying causes, which is poverty? It's not getting at that. What is really behind hunger is a lack of resources with which to purchase food, which is derived from not a poor wages. Un- well, we don't have high unemployment currently, but we have unstable unemployment. It's hard for people to get full-time work. Um, we have a poor educational system, which it makes it difficult to get a job. Uh, we have a lot of racism, sexism, misogyny in our society uh, that, that underlie a lot of the hunger and the, and the poverty in our country, especially when you look at, you know, who's hungry? It's people of color and it's women. So we need to be addressing those more structural issues. What about the fact that people are hungry right now? Absolutely. I mean, hunger is something that, you know, is not going to wait. People can't wait. Hunger doesn't wait for the revolution for tomorrow. So that's the success and that's the reason behind emergency food system is is helping those people out who need that help on a today basis. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways you feel like these kinds of organizations, food banks and, and food pantries could begin to not, I, I don't think you're advocating that people should just 
shut down the food pantries and Absolutely. stop feeding people. Absolutely but, not. But what's a way, what are ways that they could continue that work and also begin to address some of those root causes? Sure. I do think that, you know, the, we, we've seen a growth curve of food banking since it originated in the early 1980s to the point where we are now. We're to serving 46 million people, about $5 billion worth of food. So the question I ask is, is that a good thing or are we kind of digging ourselves deeper into a rut every year with that growth? You know, how can we bend that curve down mm-hmm. uh, toward until we, 10, 20 years, we have a much more sustainable amount of food uh, being distributed. Uh, so, you know, what we've seen is there's a lot of change in the, in the anti-hunger community. There's a lot of change in the food banking community, especially these days. A lot more food banks are starting to implement community development projects. They're working in community gardens. They're buying from local farmers. Uh, they're organizing lo- rural communities around self-reliance. They're doing job training. They're doing, you know, a whole variety of things that are helping people get out of poverty and helping communities be more sustainable. And, and they're also doing a much better job of, of providing healthier food. Uh, so that work has been you know, widely accepted and is moving forward quickly. Where I see the hardest problems is around economic justice. I see it very hard for, for food banks to engage on public policy advocacy around the minimum wage, around affordable housing, and fighting for DACA, fighting for immigration reform, or fighting for universal health care. They've stayed away from those controversial issues because they're afraid of alienating their bipartisan Across the, across the political spectrum set of donors. Uh, it, it's much more challenging for them to kind of engage on the left, if you will, than to maintain kind of status quo on the right. Part of what I'm talking about as well is that the leadership of anti-hunger groups are people that look like me. They're white, they're male, they're middle class. Uh, they're not coming from the ranks of, of folks who are poor. If you look at the board of directors of many food banks, you know, they're white and male, or maybe white and female, but they're not, you know, they're not people of color. They're not clients. We're not, it, this is, it, we could do a lot better job of organizing uh, the 46 million people who receive food, who receive charity. Uh, the 40 million people who are on SNAP, the 80 to 100 million people who are donors to food banks across the country at any time during the year. I mean, that's a huge slice of the American population. If we can mobilize those people, even a small section of those people towards action, we'd have a much different society, a much different response to hunger. I mean, I feel like a big part of what you're talking about is income inequality, which I think we know is growing. That is a big problem to address. It's a big problem for food banks and food pantries to take on. Yeah, it is a big problem. I mean, it's, it, I think it's one of the defining issues of our generation. The question is, what do we do about it? And where, where do we go with it? And I think if we don't, we see some really clear political implications. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, which, as you probably all know, was a very thriving steel town until about ni- early 1980s. The bottom fell out when the steel industry left. I grew up with, you know, the kids of the steel workers. The parents, you know, worked in steel mills, made a decent middle-class living, had a boat, went on vacation. You know, they had a decent life. The bottom fell out in the early 80s. And since then, the economy has never really recovered in Youngstown. It's, you know, lost. It's a shell of what it once was. The people who, who have stayed, most of them have left, but the people who have stayed are perhaps working at Walmart or they're perhaps working at the at the private prison or, or you know, if they're lucky, they found a job at the Chevy assembly plant. So Trump County has always voted Democratic. I mean, if you, back to 1972, but it's been a solidly blue county for the past 50 years. For the first time, 
they voted they voted Republican. They voted for Trump in 2016. Why? You know, everybody there is asking why. What happened? And, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is that we didn't provide, as a society, we didn't provide them with good options. We never focused on bringing back the manufacturing jobs. We never focused on wages. We never focused on those self-reliant strategies that people care about. And I think we have to look at, you know, the, the emergency food system as part of that, the anti-hunger part, uh, community as part of that. You know, the, the solutions that we've offered them as an anti-hunger community have been ones that they don't want. They've been SNAP. Right. Nobody wants to nobody wants to be reliant on government benefits and charity, which is even worse in many ways. The anti-hunger community has not invested enough attention and effort into that those broader anti-poverty strategies. They've not built those alliances with labor, for example, to help bring those jobs back. Instead, they built their alliances with Walmart. And the political implications are really clear. We see it. We've seen it in the 2016 election. You know, I, I know in the work that uh, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard has been doing, and I've, I've worked with them before, and I've had them here on the program and spoken about changing this narrative of hunger and looking at the charity model and starting to look at things from a social justice perspective instead. And I think people's first reaction to that is, what's wrong with charity? Isn't charity a good thing? Shouldn't we all be more charitable? So could you talk a little bit about the critique of the concept of charity? Sure. Charity is wonderful, right? I'm not going to tell people not to be charitable. I'm not, not arguing that people should be mean-spirited or not give anything to somebody in need. But charity shouldn't be the primary way we address hunger in our society. A charity is not justice. Charity is what a society does when there is no justice. It is a fundamentally at odds with the concept of the right to food. The idea behind it is that people have a right to food, not, not that's provided by the government, not that the government's going to you know, give everybody their groceries, but that the government has, has the responsibility to ensure that everybody has the ability to acquire food in a dignified manner. And I think there's some inherent barriers and inherent downsides to charity insofar as that they are not dignified. We, there's, a, there's a price to pay in our dignity when we have to rely on charity every day. Um, Nick Saul, who wrote a great book called The Stop, talks about charity and food banking as a death by a thousand cuts to the soul. If you talk to a lot of clients of food, of food banks, food pantries, they will tell you the same thing, that it's not a dignified way of having to feed yourself. So by yes, on one level, charity is wonderful, but we need to be preventing poverty in the first place. We need to be moving towards a society that creates structures in which people aren't hungry, in which people don't need charity. We need to make charity obsolete by and large. It is not a sustainable nor healthy nor a positive way for a society to operate when we have to rely on charity to the extent that we have. I was thinking about your child's food drive. Sure. That food drive is teaching families across the country that the solution to hunger is to throw a few cans into a barrel. Or you write that $50 check at Christmas and, you know, you feel good about yourself because you did the right thing. Yeah, you did the right thing on some level, but it's the easy thing. So we need to get beyond the easy thing and start doing the hard thing. Yeah. I've been speaking with anti-hunger activist and author Andy Fisher. Find out more about his book, Big Hunger, on our website, eartheats.org.
Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Thanks to the Earth Eats team, including Aabon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, Renee Reed, the IU Food Institute, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Andy Fisher. Earth Eats theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Our executive producer is John Bailey. I'm Kate Young. I produce the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.